Good to see you guys this morning. I uh, hope you're well. Love to hear the, the chatter as always. I um, also hope you're going to enjoy this uh, three-day weekend that we have. Um, yeah, tomorrow we get a chance to um, acknowledge and honor and celebrate the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and um, the work in which he pioneered and um, in some ways um, the, the legacy that he has left us to continue in that work. Um, and one of the things that I, I like to come back to, to Dr. King is a couple of things. One, um, the man was a preacher. The man was a pastor. Um, and he loved the Bible, loved the scriptures, and his whole vision was rooted in the narrative arc of the scriptures. The second thing is Dr. King was, in fact, a doctor. He was a scholar as well. <laughs> so he was a pastor scholar. Um, but one of the things I have always enjoyed as well is to actually read some of the various sermons of Dr. King. You know, it's easy for us just to read, I have a dream speech, which is beautiful. Um, but there are so many other documents and sermons and writings that I would encourage you all over the next couple days to read. Um, he was also deeply influenced by a, another theologian by the name of Howard Thurman, uh, someone who I appreciate greatly. We actually have a couple of Howard Thurman's books in our bookstore. And so as you consider Dr. King and his vision and legacy, um, I would also encourage you to read some of his sermons, um, read some Howard Thurman um, and dive in that way. So um, that being said, it is good to see you all today. Um, quick question for you. I have a picture for you uh, as we kind of get started. Um, does, does anyone know what this is, what these are? These are weeds, and we're going to get into those um, today. <laughs> yes. Now, let me just say, I made the mistake, first of all, of Googling weed. And I didn't get what I was looking for. Let me just say that. Um, so I would encourage you to look up weed if you're looking for weeds, plural. Um, but we are going to get in the weeds today. Um, you might have thought we got into the weeds last week, but we really didn't get into the weeds last week. Um, our whole discussion and teaching around biblical literacy is actually a bed of weeds. Um, so I only have a short period of time with you all each Sunday to navigate some of these weeds together. But today in particular, it's going to be um, content heavy. Um, again, some of you might think that's every single Sunday, but especially this Sunday. So I wore an Emmaus colored beanie to at least keep you engaged <laughs> if things get a little dry and dull for you today. Okay? Yes. Let's do this. You came thinking I was going to give you three tips to a better life, and um, that's not happening today. So, um, I guess just good luck out there. Um, no, I'm kidding. So, last week we did kind of lay out a bit of direction for where we are hoping to go throughout the year. Um, I hope that that was helpful for you all as we consider direction and where we hope to um, go. And that is specifically an emphasis in our community on theological education, which was uh, more or less rooted in this line by Dallas Willard where he says, we truly live at the mercy of our, our ideas. In other words, 
our vision of reality, our ideas about reality, dictate our reality. So we want to look into uh, basic Christian doctrine and having an understanding of what historically has been called orthodoxy or the faith throughout the tradition of the church and considering our various mental maps that we have of reality. And I mentioned that all of us have one. We all have a life script that has been given to us from some direction or another. And so I would encourage us to consider those maps. Where did it come from? Um, how did you obtain it? How has it changed? So on and so forth. And is it accurate to reality? Um, specifically, as it pertains to the primary story that shapes our ideas, our ethics, our desires, and our way of looking at the world. We are deeply formed by the social imaginary, as it's called in our time. Our culture shapes us more than we know. Um, And so that's kind of where we're going over the next few months. And in doing so, we started our new teaching series on biblical literacy called The Great Library. What the Bible is and how to read it. And we discovered that the Bible isn't actually a single book. And the word Bible is actually nowhere in the Bible, but rather it is a library or a collection of 66 books spanning 1,500 or so years, three different continents, three languages, over 35 authors, and multiple genre types. So when we think about the Bible as a library, we have to approach it as so. That forces our approach as we engage. Yet, given all the complexity and the um, amount of books, roughly 50%, and even some scholars argue 70%, of this collection is narrative or story. And that story throughout the whole arc of the scriptures has continuity and flow to it. It's thematically connected. In fact, in our house church this past week, we were looking at a a graph that shows the intertextual connection between Old Testament and New Testament. And it's rather fascinating to see the continuity. And we were able to answer a critical question last week, and that was the question, what's the point? What is the point of the Bible? What is its aim? And we clarify that the point of the Bible, I think, is best articulated by uh, the Bible Project, which I am a big fan of, encourage you to, to dig into. And that is that the Bible is a unified story, keyword unified, that leads to Jesus. A unified story that leads to Jesus. And it climaxes and hinges on or in Jesus. And that is what we have called the gospel, the euangelion of Jesus. And to read the Bible in such a light helps us read it as an integrative whole, to consider the entire story. Uh, In biblical studies, this is called biblical theology. So to read a part of the Bible and consider that part as it pertains to the larger whole. In other words, if you look at a golf ball, you have to consider the golf ball in light of the game of golf as a whole. If you look at a paintbrush, you consider the paintbrush in light of a larger piece of artwork or or something in that regard. So, biblical theology. So, we engage our, our ideas 
our understanding of the Bible as they fit into this larger picture of the Bible, not separate from it. We don't just take something out and hold it up and examine it on its own. We have to consider it in context of the larger whole. The, the Kenyan theologian John Mbiddy says this. He says, biblical theology must be the basis of any theological reflection. Otherwise, we shall lose our perspectives and may not claim the outcome to be Christian. We have to consider biblical theology as the basis of our understanding when we look at various uh, points of reflection. Now, I also got behind last week and advocated for with no sort of... Um, you know, uh, advertising behind. I'm not getting any credit for this, but I pushed the Jesus Storybook Bible to you all. Um, and I'm not just pushing it for your kids. I hope you know I'm pushing it for you. We actually have a few copies for you to buy. It is phenomenal. And last week, we just started beginning to read the Jesus Storybook Bible with Selah at night. And uh, it was an interesting case study in the human experience, and specifically the Western Christian experience with the Bible. Um, started with creation, the very first story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, we were going to take it a story at a time. You know, it covers roughly 40 stories from front to back, Genesis to Revelation. And as we started the creation story, I barely got into anything. And Jesus, uh, not Jesus, I'm sorry, Selah starts ripping the pages forward saying, baby Jesus, baby Jesus. And I'm like, no, honey. Everything in regards to Jesus is predicated on what comes before Jesus. We can't jump ahead to Jesus yet. So I keep trying to read the creation narrative. And she's like, baby Jesus. I'm like, no, we're not getting to Jesus yet. He has not come yet. Okay. But it was interesting because that's just what we tend to do. We just get to Jesus. But we have to recognize that everything that comes before Jesus helps us have an understanding of who Jesus is and why he came. Without it, we will have a misunderstood Jesus. Misunderstood Jesus. So to understand him, you have to understand what was before him and why he came. The Old Testament scholar Sandra Richter there's another rich book called The Epic of Eden. If you want an introduction to the Old Testament, I encourage you to check her out. She says, the church's lack of knowledge of their own heritage renders much of the wealth of the New Testament inaccessible to them. And she equates this to this sort of um, Christian Alzheimer's disease in that we get to a point where we aren't able to recognize characters in our past. People have to get reintroduced. And so when that happens, we actually forget in some ways who we are now because we forget who we once were. And so I love this emphasis on engaging the Bible as a whole. We have to have an awareness of our heritage, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, in order to gain clarity on who Jesus is and why he came. Otherwise, you're going to think he just came to set you individually free from this world so you can go to heaven when you die to hang out with some celestial beings, little baby angels. They're singing for thousands and thousands of years in a non-physical reality. And if I'm honest, that does not sound compelling or exciting at all. And that's actually not the story, if you read it, that's presented in the whole of the scriptures. So we have to have a picture of the whole to gain greater clarity. All right, so today I am going to try my best and tackle the authority and nature of the Bible. 
in a few moments with you. <laughs> so, to that, you're going to have a lot more questions after this sermon, I promise. And I'm not going to address some things that you would love for me to address. But as I mentioned last week, I'm not able to, and I can't, especially in a sermon. Um, plus, I may not even have the answer to it. There are plenty of great scholars out there that we can help you um, be able to dive into as these weeds continue to seem to multiply, okay? Um, but I do want us to look at the authority and nature of the Bible, kind of where it came from, and how this strange ancient collection of books with a talking snake on page three somehow carries weight for us today. I mentioned last week, the Bible's weird, the Bible's complex, it's jagged and it's odd, I get it. But somehow, it's both repulsive and deeply, like, compelling at the same time. And it has changed people throughout history, across the globe, transculturally. And I mentioned last week as well that much of the tension with regards to the Bible today isn't so much, though partially, what the Bible says. The tension is with how we read the Bible. How we read it. That being fundamentally a question of context or contextual interpretation. What does the scripture mean for us today? But most importantly, I think, the tension lies in the question of authority. Authority. Now, this is no shock that in an age marked by cynicism toward any sort of institution, tradition, and established authorities outside of the self, that there would be some cynicism towards the authority of the Bible. Why? It's not just the Bible that we're cynical towards. We're cynical towards any sort of institution or tradition or external authority that's been passed on generation to generation. It's part of the ethos of our current moment in history. Would you agree with that? Okay. Which presents a deeper question than the authority of the Bible. And that is the authority of Jesus over and in our life. Is he or isn't he Lord? Because if he is, he is an external authority. And so we have to kind of go deeper into a deeper question than just the authority of the Bible. We have to actually dig into the authority of Jesus himself. If, in fact, the notion is we reject external authorities. And so when we begin to have debate with folks regarding the scriptures, or we get into to tension with folks, and we even wrestle with ourselves... We can wrestle with the authority of the Bible, and I understand that. But we also have to, if we're wrestling with authority, we have to wrestle with the authority of Jesus himself as well. Let's at least be intellectually uh, consistent in our approach, in our critique. Now, authority, I want us to know this, isn't primarily about rules and regulation. But who gets the final say? That's what authority has to do with. And I get it makes a lot of us millennials and Gen Z utterly cringe to hear the notion of authority. Even though, I would argue, we all submit to some sort of authority. All of us do. Okay? Just look at fashion trends. We follow some authority out there. <laughs> Just think about words in which we say. I made the mistake the other day. 
I feel like I'm getting old, man. Does anybody ever feel that way? Like, you're like, man, one day I was, like, young and cool. The next day I'm old and out of touch with reality. Um, and I made the comment in a group. I just said I, to someone, I said, sheesh. And a person looked at me from our church who is a gen, very much Gen Z and said, have you been watching TikTok videos? I said, no. I just heard somebody say, sheesh, in our church. And she was like, well, that's, what, that's, that's like a thing on TikTok. Oh, okay. Does that mean I'm not cool or cool? You got you to tell me where I fall in the cultural milieu of our time. Um, so what I'm saying is that even represents there is some sort of authority in our time. You tracking with me? Small example, but it's there. But authority isn't primarily about rules and regulation. It's about who gets the final say, who is in charge. Uh, the one by whom has ultimate authority, I want us to know this, dictates the direction and plot of the story. The one who has ultimate authority dictates the direction and plot of the story. And I've said before, and I'll reiterate this, that it is no coincidence at all that the root word of authority is author. They have the same etymological roots. Author, story, authority. Do you see the connection? So, when considering authority in the Bible, all authority, hear me out, this is so key, all authority doesn't rest on or in the scriptures. All authority rests on and in Father, Son, and Spirit. All authority rests on God. But God exercises his authority, mediates his authority through the scriptures. Are you tracking? Some of us came from traditions where the Bible was seen as like a third person of the Trinity in some regard. <laughs> the Spirit, first of all, was like, forget the Spirit. We got the Bible now, baby. You know? And that ends up leading to what's called biblicism. It's idolatry. Okay? Now, also hear me. I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. God has total authority. And his authority is mediated historically through the Scriptures. This is historically something that we believe as Orthodox Christians across the world. So, God exercises his authority through the scriptures. So when we say biblical authority, that's really what we mean, okay? Now, keep in mind also, authority is mediated and exercised through writing all of the time. All the time in our life. You get an email from a boss to do X, Y, Z. That's a, a, a mediation of authority. That's an exercise of authority. Or if you get a letter, or better yet, a bill. Matter of fact, here we go. If we don't think that authority can be mediated through writing, just don't pay your spectrum bill over the next couple of months and see what happens. <laughs> right? Spectrum will come for you, I promise. Uh, or Duke Energy. Just don't, just, you know, there is no authority exercise here. It's just some sort of bill. It's just writing. It's just paper. No authority. You're not going to have power in a couple days. I, I promise, <laughs> right? So we actually can see that authority is exercised through 
writing even in our time today. Okay? Now, here's a question for you. Where do you see the first mention of the scriptures in the scriptures? Any guesses? Where do you first see the mention of the scriptures in the scriptures or the Bible referring to itself? Any guesses? It's an actual question. I'm not being rhetorical. Judges, Judges okay. Anyone else? This is why we're doing this series. All right, here we go. The first time that we actually see the Bible reference itself, or the scripture reference the scriptures, is in Exodus 17. Exodus 17. Just a couple chapters after Moses has part of the Red Sea and the Israelites are in the midst of exiting slavery in Egypt. Exodus 17, 14 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll. Scroll in Hebrew is the same word for book. Tracking? Word of the Lord comes to Moses in the midst of some sort of liberating activity and says, write this on a scroll. Write this in a book as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it. This is, this is key in understanding. Where do we get the Bible? So that's what we're talking about today. Where do we get the scriptures? What's the origin of it all? The first time we see the scriptures refer to itself. Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. You need to underline that word remember. You need to circle it, asterisk it, whatever, however you take notes in the Bible. And make sure that Joshua hears it. So Yahweh, in the midst of delivering the Israelites out of Egypt and rescuing them, wants Moses to write a book on what is and has happened. You're tracking with me so that it will be remembered for future generations, not just for himself. This is not a journal. This is not just for Moses to go back and look at for himself, because he specifically says, make sure that Joshua, who, by the way, is next in line to lead this whole people group, would hear about it. Pass it along, in other words. In other words, Yahweh wants the story written down so that this whole people group and future generations of this people group can remember how God delivers, rescues, liberates, and saves. This is, this is key in understanding the arc and nature of the scriptures and the Bible and what it's trying to accomplish. We're not just dealing with golden tablets that just fall out of the sky out of nowhere. Like, if someone uses that kind of language with you, you need to be very sus. <laughs> See, I told, I'm kind of cool, I promise. Um, you, you need to be, you need to be speculative. Uh, that's weird. And that's not what happens. It's not what happens. Okay? So, the word of the Lord comes to Moses. Write this down so that people can remember what I'm doing. I'm, I'm delivering you. I'm saving you. I'm rescuing you. Now, future generations in this people group would not only have the story, 
but also a meal and a festival, a feast, a Passover meal, as a means of remembering God's redemptive act. So you got story being written down, and you've got a meal being given, all as a means of remembering God's liberating and redemptive work in history. So this gives us a glimpse of what God is actually doing through the written word. In a few hundred years prior to Exodus 17, God, the creator of the cosmos, recognized that his good and beautiful and ordered plan for all of creation had gone awry. And he was grieved. He was moved. There was violence, brokenness, and misrepresentation of who he was by his image bearers in the world. So God, like he has done before with Adam and Eve and with Noah and Nema, calls up a random family, Abraham and Sarah, to be the chosen family that he is going to use to serve as an alternative picture, way, and contrasting vision from the brokenness of the world to be a blessing to the nations. Remember, God always uses families to accomplish his plans in the world. And a few hundred years before Exodus 17, he chose Abraham and Sarah and creates a covenant with them and chooses them to be an alternative vision in a broken world that more clearly represents him because he's so grieved at the violence and the brokenness and the disorder and the chaos. So he wants to choose a people because he wants to work through his image bearers to provide a vision for an alternative way and that they would be a blessing to the rest of the nations. So the order and peace and, and shalom and flourishing would come about. It was his plan from the beginning. And in doing this, he creates this covenant of reciprocity. Hey, I'm going to do this if you do this. It's this mutuality, all right? This covenant of reciprocity. And covenant's not language we are used to in our context. We are more familiar, you know, in a post kind of legal society in terms of, you know, um, jurisdiction and whatnot. And that, the language we're more used to is contract, okay? Uh, contract. But contract is transactional. It's not relational. In the ancient world, covenant was relational. Yes, it was binding. Yes, it was contractual. But it was rooted in relationship and hopes for both parties to experience flourishing. Are you tracking with me? And so he creates this reciprocal covenant with Abraham and Sarah. And this covenant family is who he is in Exodus 17, rescuing and delivering out of Egypt. But what ends up happening in the story? What ends up happening? The Hebrew people are very eager to walk in the promise that they make. They're like, we'll do it. We'll do it. Um, back to Selah, who's become a great sermon illustration for me in recent uh, weeks and months. There are many occasions where I'm like, hey, say, say, you got to get down on her level, right? You know, I'm trying to be a good parent. Hey, say, say, um, you probably shouldn't open that drawer with knives in it because it might hurt you. Okay. Can you say, okay, daddy? Okay, daddy. Okay. Daddy walks away. Daddy hears a wrestling in the drawer. Daddy comes back, Selah smiles, Selah runs. Like, <laughs> you know, Selah says, I will, but she doesn't. The Hebrew people say, we will, 
but they don't. It's not that complicated, to be honest. It's not. That's why when people say things like, man, the scriptures are so out of date. I'm like, get underneath the details, and they're really not. People are people. Humans are humans. Motivations are motivations. Dispositions are dispositions. Whether you have uh, an iPhone or you got tablets, people are people. And we see brokenness throughout all of it. So they, they don't follow through. So what does God do? God establishes laws to provide grounding for the covenant. Okay? Providing grounding for the covenant. Now, is Yahweh controlling or manipulating? It doesn't seem like it to me. Because Yahweh wants a new kind of people to represent his goodness and justice in the world. He is grieved. He is so grieved that he was moved to confront it simply with a people who would trust him. That is why he is doing this. It's what God wanted from the beginning. God is moved with compassion. He's trying to figure out how can we bring order and peace and justice and goodness to this world. Do you like it the way it is? Can you figure it out on your own? It's not, not looking like it. There's violence everywhere. So, God creates these boundaries for flourishing. I want us to hear that. For flourishing. Well, that doesn't work. And the people keep finding themselves in bad situations. The Hebrew people all through the scriptures. So, what, is, what does Yahweh do? He calls on leaders. He calls on judges. Eventually calls on prophets. They ask for a king. He didn't want to give them a king. They ask for a king. He gives them a king. Things don't go the way they hoped. Things don't go the way God wanted. So he calls on prophets specifically to proclaim and write down where they need course correction. And how he would rescue them if they would just turn around and come home. Or come back to him. That's what repentance is. It's to come home. It's to turn around and come back home where you belong, where there is security, flourishing, and peace. But you have to trust my way is the right way. Selah doesn't trust me when I talk about the drawer. She also didn't trust me one day when I was like, you're going to fall off that chair. Guess what happens? Little girl falls. Little girl cries. Little girl runs to mommy. Doesn't trust me. Why would we be any different? Seriously, why? So, the whole story of the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament, the same book of books that the Jews use, that, that Muslims use even, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, 39 books is of this back and forth of a father seeking to rescue and redeem his lost and broken children, bring them home and have them help renew the disordered world. But it just doesn't seem to work. So that's the Old Testament for you in just a few minutes. But despite failure after failure, God is still on a mission. He's not going to give up. He still has made a covenant to restore and redeem all of the nations and all of creation. So what does God do? He comes in the flesh. 
through this covenant people 2,000 years after Abraham, 1,500 years after Moses in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. How brilliant. He enters into the flesh as human through this covenant lineage in order to redeem and restore the world. So Jesus fulfills the story so far and takes it into a new future to redeem the destruction. Are you with me so far? All right. So many of us are cool to this point with regards to the Bible. Great story, man. It's awesome. Hero's journey, you know. We're familiar with the the approach. But can we not just drop the scripture part and have Jesus? Like just, can we just have Jesus? I just do Jesus. I don't do the Bible. I just do Jesus. Okay, that's fine. So let us consider Jesus's understanding of written scripture. Okay? We're going to do that right now. All right. Um, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. These 40 days happen to mirror 40 years in the wilderness as laid out in Exodus, all right? Um, and what was God doing in the wilderness? Rescuing. Now Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days mirroring the people of Israel. What is Jesus doing? Rescuing. Redeeming. And the devil tempts him three different ways. The deceiver, the adversary, the accuser. I want us to know that the demonic is accusative. The demonic points the finger. The devil deceives. Okay? And he enters into this oddly ordinary conversation with the deceiver. The devil, the Satan, the deceiver. And the devil tries to tempt him, obviously, three different ways. And the devil actually quotes the Bible. Keep in mind, it's not just Christians that quote the Bible. Okay? Now, how does Jesus respond to these three temptations? Because he's got all power and authority that's been given to him. But he actually responds with what? The Bible. The scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures. Let's take a look at this story. Matthew 4, verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is what? Written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3. Remember, Jesus was a rabbi. He taught the scriptures and he knew the scriptures. And he's using them against the temptation of the deceiver. And this first response or counter-argument, Jesus is revealing to us that he sees scripture as sufficient for life. He is seeing the scriptures as sufficient. The devil continues. The devil takes him to the top of this holy city and has him stand on the highest point of the temple. He says to him, if you are the son of God, now he's coming after his identity. If this is who you really are, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Look, the devil's quoting the scriptures. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Uh-oh, the deceiver knows the Bible. 
the deceivers throwing the Bible at Jesus. Jesus is like, okay, hold up. He then answers and says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test, Deuteronomy 6.16. But they both quoted the Bible. Is there something wrong here? Is there something off? See, Jesus is seeing scripture as coherent and integrated whole. The deceiver is not. The tempter lacks understanding and interpretation and clarity. The deceiver is quoting a psalm that's descriptive as though it is prescriptive. You tracking with me? Okay. So, Jesus is saying, no, no, there is a prescriptive command in Deuteronomy. What you're quoting is descriptive. He's not negating it. He's just saying you're using it improperly. So then the devil's like, all right, man, listen, here's the deal. If you just get down and worship me, like, we'll be good. Can you just get down on your knees and worship me? He's given up. He's done with this. Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written. Again, third time. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6, 13. Jesus keeps pulling from the Torah. He's pulling from the Hebrew scriptures. And so the third piece after he's seen it as sufficient and coherent, now he is submitting to the direction of the scriptures as authoritative. In other words, I'm not going to do what you say because the scriptures tell me to do this. And I submit to the scriptures. I trust the scriptures. So, yes, Jesus fulfills the law. Yes, he fulfills the scriptures. But it also says in Matthew 5, and Jesus himself says, that he didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And Jesus himself, as I said before, teaches and submits to the scriptures as authoritative. So if you want Jesus, you've got to take Jesus' take on the scriptures. And he sees him as authoritative. So now you're like, okay, but what about the New Testament? Ooh, I'm curious about the New Testament. Jesus didn't write anything. Certainly not. He didn't leave us a book. And he didn't. No one believes that. On his final night before the cross, what does he have with his disciples? A meal. Oh, we're seeing connection points back to Exodus. And when is this meal happening? At Passover. Oh, another connection point back to Exodus and rescue. And who is there with him? Twelve chosen disciples whom he calls family. And what does he ask? He asks that we do this meal in remembrance of him. Sounds a lot like Exodus 17. And what else does he call this moment? What else does he speak to? He says of the, of the wine, this is the blood of my what? Covenant. And what did the covenant have in the Old Testament scriptures? It had a text that followed to provide grounding for the covenant. So this is another exodus. Mind blown. This is an act of rescue. And it's connecting the whole story in the scriptures. So here we have a covenant meal. And now a covenant people. So we need texts, just as in the Old Testament, if we keep with the pattern, to clarify the terms of this new covenant. 
eventually these people would be called followers of the way, capital W. Followers of an ethic, followers of the teachings of Jesus. Followers of this covenant. So we need text just as in Exodus. And Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus also authorizes speakers. Matthew 28. Jesus says, right before his ascension, all what has been given to me? All authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, it's a conjunction, go into all the nations and teach people in a way that they become disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them all I have commanded you. So now he is authorizing his covenant little community to go and teach. He is exercising authority with the 12. He also does something similar in John 17 when he's praying to the Father. This then becomes the 27 writings of the New Testament that we have. So, Jesus, the one whom I trust, I trust, submits to the scriptures as authoritative and authorizes apostles on his behalf. Two important pieces. Jesus submits to the Old Testament scriptures and Jesus authorizes apostles on his behalf. He gives them authority. All right? Now, I'm going to kind of close. It's not going to be a... um, you know, warm and fuzzy closing. It just makes you feel all, you know, I just experienced the Lord in this sermon. You probably won't, I'll be honest. Um, But I think clarity is going to help you experience the Lord in the future. And hopefully today as well. I'm not saying the Lord can't. I'm just saying this is not going to be the best way to land a sermon. So here we go. Just a couple of high-level, very technical thoughts that I want to to provide for you. And And I think you probably have even more questions, as I mentioned. The first thing is around this word inspiration. And now some of you are like, okay, now we're going somewhere. All right? Okay. Uh, Specifically, there are a couple of words that get thrown around a lot in the traditions that a lot of us came from, and that uh, is, and those words are, inerrancy and or infallibility. Okay? Inerrancy generally means without error. Infallibility generally means trustworthy for a specific purpose. And I actually am not a huge fan of either one of those words. Some of you are like, is he a heretic? No, I'm not. I promise. I promise. I do believe the scriptures are authoritative, but inerrancy and infallibility actually did not appear at all until the late 1800s as words used regarding the scriptures. But they were considered authoritative. So outside of authority, one other great debate arises, and that is the nature of the scriptures. The nature of the scriptures. One side leans totally divine, the golden tablet kind of idea, just like, you know, these writers in a trance getting just downloads from the cloud to write these books, right? Totally divine. The other side leans totally human. Totally human. And that's, in some ways, kind of a newer perspective that comes out of textual criticism over the last couple hundred years. Um, So we have totally divine on one side, totally human on the other side, and they both kind of go at each other. So the question is, is the Bible totally divine or is it totally human? That's the question. Here's my answer to you. Here's my answer to you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Is it totally divine? Yes. Is it totally human? Yes. Which one is it? Yes. <laughs> so, 
The Bible is both, the scriptures are both divinely inspired and 100% written by humans with human uh, flair or human personality and human imperfectibility as well. But these two aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, has God ever had a problem uniting humanity and the divine? He does so in Jesus. To be honest, if we struggle with divinity and humanity coming together, then we are going to actually, first of all, struggle with the incarnation. Heaven and earth collide in the holiest of holies. It's not mutually exclusive. So it's divine and human. Now, uh, there was a modern artist, middle of the 20th century, Dutch artist named M.C. Escher, who I think provides a, a picture of this divinity and humanity kind of uh, coalescing together as one. Uh, he was famous for depicting what he referred to as visual paradoxes. Anybody familiar with M.C. Escher's work at all? A couple of people, great. Um, where you can see multiple things happening at the same time that you might think shouldn't happen at the same time where you see um, two things where one is not dominant over the other. One of his best-known works was done in 1948, and it's called Drawing Hands. I want you to see this picture. Which hand is drawing the other hand? Yeah, you don't have an answer. <laughs> because it's hard to tell. Which one is dominating the other? Which one's in control? You can't, you can't choose. It's a visual paradox. Two things happening at the same time. Neither hand dominating the other. Both hands riding each other. In some ways, I think this picture provides for us a little bit of clarity as how two things can interact together at the same time without one dominating the other. And the scriptures do the same thing. Neither human or divine dominate. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are both divine and human. Divinely given, human composed. Some of you have clarity. Some of you are like, man, more questions. My last point, all right, my last point for our download today, <laughs> and that is around the idea of the canon. The canon. In other words, how did these books get chosen? Who chose them? How did they get in here? First of all, the word canon means rule or standard. It means rule or standard. And the reference point for all other writings or teachings. Um, but it's important to note this. This is from the New Testament scholar Dennis Edwards. He says this, Canonization, this is important, was not an event, but a process. In other words, the compiling of these books into a unified whole together in one place was not an event, but a process. The idea of, of standardizing these books as, as canon was not a one-time thing with just a couple of people, you know, post-Constantine. It was a process over hundreds of years. Now, the Old Testament canon was said to have been completed around 200 years B.C. In other words, the Old Testament canon brought together to provide the ruler standard was completed around 200 years before Christ. But the greater questions that we often have usually comes with the New Testament. 
in conjunction with the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire during the, during the fourth century. Um, the 27 books in the New Testament, as we know it, was canonized officially and closed in 393 AD in Northern Africa, specifically under uh, a lot of leadership from St. Athanasius, although there were bishops from across the world a part of this process. But the first list compiled by St. Athanasius of these 27 books as one whole unit was in 363 AD. So you've got a 30-year gap there of these books being considered one collective whole. However, the majority of these texts in the New Testament were already, this is so important, consistently being read aloud in church gatherings in the 2nd and 3rd century. In other words, the majority of the New Testament, as we know it, before it's even canonized, were being read aloud consistently and across the region for a couple of hundred years. You follow me? Justo Gonzalez, uh, who has a phenomenal history of Christianity in two volumes, says this. By the end of the second century, the core of the canon was established. The four Gospels, Acts, and the Pauline Epistles. You track it? By the end of the second century. We're talking like 175 AD. Before Constantine. Okay? On the shorter books that appear toward the end of the present canon, there was no consensus until a much later date, but there also was little debate. It's so a church historian speaking. But now you say, weren't there other gospel writings? I've heard something about this before. I read The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. <laughs> Tell me more. Yes, there were. There were other so-called gospel accounts called Gnostic Gospels. And they weren't discovered until the 1940s. Okay, 1940s. Some of those were the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas. And now you're like, oh man, now this is just, this is blowing it all up. Like a couple thousand years down the drain, right? But according to Gonzalez and other scholars, the discovery of the Gnostic Gospels has only reinforced what the early rejectors of Gnosticism, which is documented in church history, revealed and which they rejected. People like St. Irenaeus, Polycarp, Tertullian, and Clement of Rome. Gnosticism was a heresy in the ancient early church that was rejected by every single Christian that was across the entire Middle East, Africa, Asia, and Southern Europe. And was rejected. Gnostics specifically rejected the Old Testament. They rejected the, yeah, the, the picture of God and Yahweh in the Old Testament. They were very, very much Neoplatonic, a.k.a. the material world was bad. Material world was bad. And a lot of our theology today, I'll be honest, has been influenced by Gnosticism. The body's bad. The material world's bad. It's all going to blow up anyway. You know, your spirit needs to be saved. Let's do some soul winning, that kind of thing. Release your inner spirit. Like, it's actually penetrated the far left and the far right. They're not that much different, friends. It's both Gnosticism. You know, my body's not me. Who I am is inside of me. It needs to be released, right? Or the sense that, like, my soul needs saved. All this is bad. I'm going to burn up. Like, you hear this from your grandma and your Gen Z 15-year-old. It's both Gnosticism. <laughs> it just is different flavor. It's the same meal, it's not part of the ancient tradition of the church. The body is good. The material world is good, and God is redeeming it and renewing it and restoring it from the top down. You tracking with me? Okay. So, 
Um, uh, Vince Bantu puts it succinctly. I like Vince Bantu a lot. He got his, uh, his doctorate in ancient Semitic languages and, and Egyptian languages as well. Um, these are just people you can look up if you want to. He says, when you read those quote-unquote gospels, you can see why the church everywhere, Ethiopia, Egypt, Nubia, which is modern-day Sudan, Europe, Asia, everybody rejected those books all before Constantine. So don't pull this like, well, the Roman Empire in collision with power. No, read your history. That's not true. Are there aspects that things will awry? 100%. But let's not get there yet. Let's start at the beginning. These Gnostic books were deemed heretical from the beginning. They didn't make the cut. They didn't make the criteria for the canon, which was, and I'm going to close, I promise, um, three main issues that early Christians focused on in this process of a couple hundred years. Okay? Those three things are, I'm going to have them up on the screen for you. Apostolic origin. Was the writing, was the book written by or connected to, to an apostle of Jesus? That makes sense. Someone who was authorized, correct? Correct? Someone who's authorized within the first century. So the New Testament books, all, whether there's debate or not, which there is across scholarship of when books were dated, they all were in the first century of the church, connected within a few decades of Jesus and the apostles. Most Gnostic books were written, if not all of them, in the second century. In fact, you know, we, we see the Gospel of Thomas written in the second century, but Thomas wouldn't even have even been alive in the second century. So it would have been a pseudonym that was used. It's not actually Thomas, or Mary Magdalene for that matter, or Philip. Okay? The second aspect of canonization has to do with broad utilization or the catholicity of these books. Were these books read across multiple churches, across different regions and continents? Yes, they were. History reveals to us this in the first, uh, excuse me, the second century. It reveals this to us. So there was broad utilization of these 27 books. The third piece is the rule of faith, or the regular fide. In other words, were the teachings of these books in the New Testament in alignment with what had been passed down through the faith? Were they in alignment with the teachings of Jesus? If they weren't, they were thrown out. It would be like, honestly, some medical researcher who comes up with some new cure for cancer, they're like, if you start drinking a, a little ounce of Windex every day as a cancer patient, it will cure cancer. The, the medical profession is going to be like, I don't believe that at all. Provide your evidence. Let's look at it. If it comes back as like, okay, that's, that's in alignment with what we have found, then it's like, okay, cool, bring it on in. If not, the person's deemed a heretic. Like, it happens in the medical field. Like, this is normal. Same thing happened, right? The other piece of the Gnostics is they, they only believe that there was one true witness to the gospel. But the early church, uh, as, as it had been already discussed and had been gathering for hundreds of years, wanted a diversity of apostles to represent the gospel story, which we have four different gospel accounts. And those four different gospel accounts with their nuances actually is evidence that they are true. You tracking? Okay. So, those are three elements of the process of canonization. Now, the power of a uh, prescription. <laughs> You're like, where do, what? Canonization to, you know, prescription drugs? Yes. Um, the power of a prescription lies between what is in the medicine and the knowledge of the physician and pharmacist in collision. If you don't believe this, talk to Nathan and Shelby. They're both pharmacists. Um, there, there, there is a conversation between physician and pharmacist that happens at the highest level um, where there is um, dialogue on instructions from a physician and from a pharmacist with medicine that has the potential to either heal or to harm, right? We all know this to be true. 
So the purpose in prescribing the medicine isn't to just convey information on a label. True? That's partially true, but the purpose of this conveyed information is to aid in the healing of the patient and the knowledge involved oriented at achieving that end. The authority of the prescription isn't undermined if the address on the label is missing one number or a word is misspelled. What is devastating is if the wrong dosage is given. Why? Because it undermines the very purpose of the prescription to heal. And I want to make this my final point today. I trust in the authority of the scriptures because it is utterly sufficient for salvation. The scriptures as a whole are sufficient for its end goal, and that is salvation. Not just salvation in a moment, but salvation as life. It is sufficient to provide for you and I the story of God redeeming his people and creation in the world. And as you hear that story and respond to that story in faith, it heals you. And I believe it's sufficient in doing so, despite all of the, the debate, which is, is necessary. But the, the, the aim of the scriptures is theological. And that is, it is sufficient to reveal to us that God is actively working to redeem his people from the beginning of time. And he uses his son Jesus as a gateway to help bring in this ultimate sort of renewal to all the world that impacts us even to this day, 2,000 years later. It is sufficient to reveal that story and that vision. I trust in the Bible because I trust in Jesus. And the scriptures reveals to me the healing is possible at an eternal level. So the purpose of the scriptures is to help diagnose the universal human condition, and I think it does it. To reveal the healer, and it does it. And reveal the way to healing, and it does it. Just as a meal, it is something that we ingest. The Bible and the scriptures are something that we ingest. And as we ingest the story and submit to the story, we get a chance to meet the author of the story who offers healing and salvation and redemption and calls you and I home as lost children in this world, trying to figure it out on our own. So I realized that today was a lot. I told you it was, though. Hopefully my beanie kept you on track. But we come to the table every week because Jesus left us a meal. We enter the scriptures because it's, in some ways, a meal. Eugene Peterson has a great book that's called Eat This Book. He's talking about the way in which we engage the scriptures as a meal. So, nothing wild in the reading.